0: Hi everybody, thanks so much again for tuning in. I have a special guest mail appearance coming your way today. Super excited to share my conversation with my longtime family friend, Steve Siegel, who at the age of 73 is now the chairman of C.B. Richard Ellis, the world's largest commercial real estate services company. Okay, so I'm from Philadelphia, so I got to travel to New York City for this interview. So not only did I have a ton of fun with Steve, but I also got to see my sister, Patrice hayden Mayer, who works at C.B. Richard Ellis. We had a ton of fun catching up and still trying to get Patrice on the podcast. Uh, Anyhow, back to Steve. He has often been described by the media as a legendary real estate game changer and titan in New York City, but it's important to note that Steve came from a very humbling upbringing in the Bronx. He never graduated college, but his parents instilled in him values that inspired him to work tremendously hard throughout his whole life. He landed in the commercial real estate industry at the age of 17, and he never stopped. Not only did Steve take us on his journey throughout his business career, but he also was kind enough to share honest stories, such as when his wife battled leukemia when he decided to stop drinking and how he got creative during some of the darkest economic downfalls. Steve has also been credited by the Wall Street Journal as the most generous man in the commercial real estate industry. He talks a lot about the importance of giving back and how he learned this way of life through his parents who didn't have money to give back, but always gave back their times. For instance, his mom would often help the poor and mentally challenged on her weekends. Hope you guys enjoyed the conversation with Steve as much as I did. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah, and edit it, totally. Um, All right, let's roll. <laughs> do you want the questions too?
1: No. Are you sure? I'm positive. I, don't want, you to. I, don't, I want to be spontaneous. Okay. I'm don't. i don't, I'm not good at preparing. I'm really not. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I learned a long time ago. In fact, I was at a meeting, and your dad was there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was CEO of, of Christian Wingfield. Yeah. And I had the management committee, uh, put 20, 22 people. And I, I had this State of the Union address if you people at the beginning of the year what we're going to do, what goals are for everybody, and I'm reading from the speech that I wrote in those days. I wrote day. a reading, a reading, and <clears throat> at some point I get to the point where I go, and as I look around the room, and the guy next to me goes, his name is John Renaud, he goes, look around, look around, and <laughs> like, oh, shit, and so that's it, and I ripped it up, I it up and I just went, and yeah. I never wrote a speech never again.
0: Yeah, never wrote a speech again, yeah. That's interesting. That's cool.
1: Much better. I mean, it doesn't mean I don't think about it. Yeah. I'll think about it for days or longer. Yeah. When I have a a let's call it a presentation speech. What do you call it? Independence speech, a keynote speech, or a panel that I'm emceeing.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, moderating, and I'll know exactly what I'm going to ask in the sequence of what I'm going to say. Okay. And, but if I had notes, I'd be looking at them trying to. And,
0: yeah.
1: True. Yeah, I was once with Bill Clinton sitting at a table with him, and he was preparing to be the keynote speaker at a dinner. And Wendy and I were sitting at his table, and he's got these pages of notes, and he's crossing things off, and he's writing thought bubbles up in the corner. I said, oh, my God, how are you going to deal with all that? He said, oh, I'm not sure. And up there, never looked at he a Never looked at 30 of the most stimulating minutes and articulate and content, and zero.
0: Yeah, wow. Didn't, didn't
1: look at a note. That's so cool.
0: I might ask you to
1: talk about that, What happened too. that meant that he, he did what I did, but he, right, so he wrote it first and then absorbed it.
0: Yeah. All
1: right. I'm, I, I'm sorry. I'm digressing. That's okay. That was my whole talk. Right?
0: I know. <laughs> uh, so welcome, Steve, to High Five Success Stories. Thanks for having me in your busy schedule.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: <laughs> and just so the listeners know, so they know how we're connected, um, used to work with my dad way back in the day, like 25 your years ago, I think. My dad
1: and I worked together, and then he I guess for me, and when I became a manager of a region, and then when I relinquished that role, uh, promoted your dad to that role, and more important than working together, we were real partners. We were really friends, mm-hmm. and we enjoyed what we did, which is to me paramount in business is to enjoy what you do and uh, look forward to going to work every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and your dad helped me do
0: that. Oh, okay. God. And then we, you guys became good buddies too, and then united our families together. Yes. So we spent some summers down in Avalon. Cherish those memories. Yeah, Cherish It's
1: still uh, some of the best years of our lives. My kids still talk about Avalon um, as much as we have other places that we go to. And <clears throat> those are memories that they'll never lose. My son John, who's mm-hmm. forty years old now, yeah. was driving around the country for the tenth time trying to find himself. And uh, he detoured at least 300 miles out of the way to go to Ocean City for Macamacow. So help me. <laughs> he ate two full pies, took one to bring because he was heading into New York at that point, and took one to cook when he got to New York City. Airport. That's amazing. So, I mean, that memory was embedded. Uncle Bill's was embedded. Uncle Bill's, yeah. Donnelly's, Ogie's. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's a wonderful memory. You also memory. remember. So I cool. Don't remember it all.
0: Yeah. Um, so I thought we'd start out, um, I think it's important for listeners to know that you came from a humbling upbringing, and now, are you 72 now, or 74? <laughs> 57.
1: 57. <laughs> 73.
0: 73, okay, almost. Um, uh, and now you're the chairman of the largest commercial real estate company in the world.
1: Chairman of Global Brokerage of CBRE, and it's by far the largest. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
1: I think we, we will finish 2017 with the $2 billion, with their, sorry, $14 billion in revenue. Wow. So,
0: so can you tell us a little bit about where you came from and how you landed in commercial real estate?
1: Sure. Um, I was born in a borough of New York City, the Bronx. And um, my parents were well, my dad was a union painter, commercial painter. My mom was a school crossing so you know, guard. They both had a work, a very blue collar family. Uh, one sibling, um, and for most of my uh, young life. We lived in a one-bedroom apartment. My brother and I had the bedroom. My parents slept to a pull-out couch um, and Many times when we talk about my childhood people say God, like, oh, that must have been difficult I thought I had the best child in the world yeah. played in the streets we, we didn't have any parks or things of like that, but we had a park. The street was our park. We made do. In fact, just last night, I said something to my wife about some games that were played. Uh, hopscotch, Ringolivio, Boxball. These Mm -hmm. are all games, that, if you look them up, they exist. My wife had no idea what I was talking about. (laughs) She grew up in Pittsburgh, and they didn't play any of those games. Um, But uh, so I went went through high school in the Bronx. I graduated very young. I was 15 years old when I finished high school. My parents couldn't afford to send me to college, and I managed to mess up my last year, so I didn't get a scholarship anywhere. Um, So I enrolled in a city college at the time, but I had to work so i fortuitously i got a job in a, a residential real estate company in the mailroom. okay and so i could work from 8 to 1 and i went to school from 3 to roughly six thirty-seven every day got it um met somebody in that firm and uh he left to go to a company called christopher wingfield
2: mm-hmm.
1: called me four or five months later and said there was a job available in the accounting department and, and uh, would I like to interview for it? I said, sure, why not? I mean, I hate to tell you what I was making, but I was making $54 a week. Okay. And this job was 70 So it was a 30% increase. Okay, and because, I wanted yeah. to, state, to save for a car. He said, the only problem is it full time. You have to work, you know, nine to five. Right. So I said, I'll switch to night school. I interviewed, I got the job. It was a push point though I was 17. And I worked there for twenty six years at thirty seven I was named CEO.
0: So when did you know that commercial real estate was gonna be your passion? When did you know that it was the right the right thing? It
1: wasn't it wasn't like an epiphany, it wasn't like boom, yeah, God, I love this position. Um, I was raised by my dad to work hard.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He had an ethic for us a work ethic that said you have three responsibilities in life. Mm-hmm. There's a roof over your family's head, clothes on their back and food on the table. Okay. And no matter how many jobs you have to work to do that, you do that. And you need to be passionate and work harder than anybody else. How yeah. oh, long you see the hardest working person, find out a way to work harder. Okay. <clears throat> so for me, it was a job for a while.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I can't tell you when the when the boundary was crossed between it being a job and a, a means to an end, uh, you know, mm-hmm. financial uh, wherewithal, and it became a passion, but it was probably a... Very early on, when I got out of the accounting department.
2: Okay.
1: Um, I was offered, they would pay for school, and if I got my accounting degree, and whatever possessed me to have the guts to go into the then controller or CFO and say, thank you so much, but I really don't want to be an accountant. Okay. I thought maybe I'd get fired, Mm -hmm. and he said, well, let's see what we can find that you can do other than that. So they put me into a, I was able to get a license and was made a credit and collection manager for delinquent rents. Okay. Which is a horrific <laughs> experience. I mean, we call call cam and if you think that's bad, to call tenants who are buying their board. rent and tell them they got to pay or you're going to throw a dispossessed notice. Yeah. I mean, some of the language I learned from that experience <laughs> was I thought I knew it all. Yeah. Uh, and then I transitioned into. Sales when I was twenty one, and I think okay. that's when I got the passion for it. You got the passion,
0: yeah. Um, when did you make your first commission?
1: I made my first commission actually before I transferred transferred to the brokers full time. I was on a what they call a listing desk, and that's where you at that those days, everything is technical and technology oriented. Now you uh, manually uh, solicited all the buildings in New York City to get the available space. You kept it on a giant wheel color-coded by streets and size, mm-hmm. and you would do reports for the broker. The broker okay. would come and say, I need X amount of space for X amount of years Do the survey. And so I would do that, but they allowed me, if I had the possibility of getting involved in a transaction, I did. Okay. The deal was done by another broker, and I got a, a piece of it, and then that piece was the company, and they gave me my share was $15.00. And 12 cents. That was check. your first
0: commission? Yeah.
1: $15. Yes. $15. I framed the check <laughs> I put it in my little section, my, wherever it was. It wasn't an office. I hung it on the wall. And um, five days later, I broke the glass because I needed <laughs> the money. <laughs> so I cashed the check. I mean, that was my first commission yeah. $15. I forget who the tenant was because I wasn't in yeah. charge of the deal. Um, but that was enough. Yeah. That was enough. Wow. This is great. This is good, yeah. And uh, I went into, uh, you know, I spent a year on that desk, which was torture. Any more than a year, you would probably, you know, you would quit the business or blow your brains out one and the other. Right. Uh, and then they trans- transitioned me into full time sales.
0: Okay. So fast forward when you were 37 yes. and you became CEO of the company. Uh, and my dad and I were actually talking about it the other night at dinner. And you said it, you didn't think you were going to get it because I guess, was it run by the Rockefeller family? Yes. And they were waspy, whatever. And Incredibly you were single and, very, and Jewish. And so you didn't think you had a shot?
1: Single. No, I never even thought about it. Yeah. It wasn't like I didn't think I had a shot. It wasn't mm-hmm. like I was pursuing it. Okay. First of all, I was in New Jersey running a region mm-hmm. at that time because it was subsequent to that when Dad became the regional manager. Uh New York City was not even one of my offices, even though I was in the Northeast region. I ran Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, Washington, um, but not in New York. Okay. I wasn't on the executive committee. And when the CEO uh, who preceded me resigned, I didn't think about anything, and I got a call from the Rockefeller uh, in charge, the Rockefeller employee in charge of us. And he said, "I need to have lunch with you today." And I was in Jersey. This was like ten forty-five, yeah. and I said, I, you know, "I hope I can get there in time." And plus, what's going on? He said, "Never mind. I'll tell you when you get here." So I tried to reach my predecessor. I don't know four or five times before I left the office. He couldn't get him on the phone. He wouldn't take the call. So I went up and uh, at a 50th floor private club at, uh, called the Hemisphere Club. And this gentleman, Claude Nash, uh, said, "I wanted to lunch with you because the board of directors, Tim uh, Peters, has resigned." the board of directors and the executive committee have named you um, president, CEO, and COO of the company.
2: Wow. And I was like, (laughs) you know, I I said,
1: uh, are you serious? And he said, "Um, yes, we're 100% serious. I I assumed, I'm not not being humble, I'm really being honest, I assumed that I was over in Jersey and I hadn't made any trouble and there were so many other guys, like, you know, maneuvering and trying to get the job, mm. they said, you know, that guy over there is a nice guy, yeah. he's good at what he's doing, let's just bring him in and right. surprise everybody. Um, and I said, you know, i got to find out what's going on, I've got to get back to my office, and he said to me, you don't want it? I said, oh, of course, I wouldn't, I want the job, i got to find out what the circumstances are, I have some loyalty to the mm-hmm. predecessor, etc. Yeah. So I can tell you, he resigns. He's highly volatile. He's resigned multiple times and rescinded it, and we went along with it. This time was one too many, and he's out. Um, so I went down. He's always said to me, "You have one hour. Go to your office, but you have one hour. you take it, you don't take it. It's up to you." Okay. So I went down. I spoke to him. He gave me all this. I'm fed up with them. I'm not. You know, I'm not taking it back where well, they weren't giving them, mm. giving it to him. So I called. Them. Very cool. And all of a sudden, yes, and, and Wendy likes to say, my wife is Wendy. Yeah. She likes to say, uh, when she tells the story, can you imagine a 37 year old Jewish boy with white collar, <laughs> Rockefellers, um, and uh, to be named president and CEO is on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Was like, so
2: cool.
1: Whoa, what Yeah, right. Um,
0: now, obviously, hard work ethic got you there. But are there any other qualities that you
1: have that helped you become CEO of a company? Um, again, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously smart, so I won't mm-hmm. downplay that side of it. But we had a very senior guy who was also very uh, abrasive and mm-hmm. difficult. Uh, he's passed away or else I would certainly give you his name. Um, and he said one day he came in, he closed the door and he said, i'll never know why you were named ceo i wasn't even considered i want to be chairman they won't fill that role they tell me that's yours when you want it mm-hmm. um you didn't finish business school you may not even have finished college as far as i know which i didn't okay. um and there's a side story to that and he said what do you have and i said well the one thing i can think of his first name is john
2: mm-hmm.
1: is i really love people I have yeah. instincts about people. I can tell when people are unhappy. I can preempt that happy that unhappiness becoming really serious. Mm.
2: Uh,
1: they know I care about them. Even when I say no, they know it bothers me as much as it bothers them mm. for me to have to say it. You, simply put, you hate people. Right. <laughs> there isn't any kind of person you like, man, woman, and also animals, probably dogs, mm-hmm. cats. Yeah. And you'll never have a chance at managing a people-oriented service business. Mm-hmm. Right. With the type of attitude you have. Yeah. So I would say from that perspective, that was probably my, big, my greatest trend. Brilliant people, I yeah. like people, people like me. Right. So I couldn't find any reason not to give me the opportunity. Totally, yeah.
0: So. I love that. Um, really impressive. So you 37. Now I'm 30, and I think that I'm kind of old. Well, now that I'm kind of getting older, I'm 30. When I think of someone who's oh, 37. You are age <laughs> older than
1: you, know. <laughs> When
0: I think of someone that's 37, they're not that no. old to me anymore. So was no. pretty young that you were CEO of a company.
1: I think it might have been the youngest. Well, not might have been the youngest ever in our Yeah. I fought. And it wasn't that I was all that, all that mature, right? <laughs> so I was still bouncing around as a single guy and a whole different era in terms of uh, interaction, you know, with all the... The issues today that uh, not in just today, but businesses throughout uh, uh, sensitivity training, etc. There was none of that. I mean, people were much more open to barbs and exchanges, and and it was actually a lot of fun. Yeah, we had a lot of fun fooling around with each other. We like played jokes, practical Mm. jokes. Yeah, as senior managers of a very big company, Um, so it was a very different time. And there's a show on TV called Mad Men which uh, depicts the advertising industry in the 80s with the hard driving, drinks at lunch, and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. It wasn't much different in yeah. my business. You know, yeah. entertained at lunch, people drank. It was, I wouldn't even know, I haven't had a drink in six years. I wouldn't even know how to function if I yeah. had a drink at lunch. All yeah, uh, right. But uh, it was commonplace. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was just a very exciting time to open offices, travel around the world. I met some of the, most amazing people I'd ever dreamt of meeting in the Bronx. Right. I don't only thing yeah. I ever thought about it in the Bronx. I mean, you know, Prince Philip, uh, first knighted uh, Chinese, uh, native Chinese, um, uh, uh, to be knighted by the, by the Queen and uh, just, you name it, yeah. presidents, this, that. Um, and you just
0: said you met Bill Clinton
1: at one point, right? Oh, I met sub- subsequently Bill Clinton. Like one of the most treasured photos I have is with David Rockefeller, okay, who's the patriarch of the, uh, the patriarch of the Rockefeller family. Mm-hmm. And I am. I went to a dinner at his home in um, in Westchester, uh, in the Hills, and we have going to take a picture. And he never was without a suit, to tie, and jacket. Yeah, and I'll show you a picture. And I got him to take his jacket off, loosen his tie, put my arm around him, put his arm around me. Yeah. And, uh, it's a picture I treasure to this day, Mm and he signed it. Um,
2: And And then, you've
0: also done some work with Donald Trump, right? In 2006, you did the Gucci Yes, I did a deal
1: on Fifth Avenue with Donald Trump, the Gucci store, which Mm -hmm. at the time was the highest retail land ever paid in New York City. Wow. Uh, It's been exceeded since then, but, uh. Working with Donald is very interesting. What you see in the White House is what you what you got. It's not an act. It's uh, he's egotistical. He's, he's narcissistic. Mm. Uh, back then he was very smart. Uh, I not I doubt that he's not smart now, but I don't think he's smart. Or I, I think he may be smart, but he's not knowledgeable about what okay. he's doing, uh, and he hasn't taken the time to become knowledgeable. Mm. Uh, he believes he can operate the com- company the same way he ran a day-to-day business. Mm. A very little diplomacy and sort of a dictatorship. Right. Uh, but he was very smart and uh, in negotiations, he was pretty good by his word. Yeah. Um, so how
0: often did you work with him during that time? During that
1: period, every day. Every day? I saw him every day for over a year. Wow. Either saw him every day or conversations with him every day.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and, you know, we had lunch and... Occasionally, it became a work for lunch, and once in a while, we would catch up after that over lunch or, mm. or some event. Or I'd see him here and there. It's um, a great character. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and, and I know the kids too. I got pretty friendly with the kids, and okay. Jared, who's in the business, so mm. I did some business with them as well. Yeah. Uh, and Ivanka, who's extremely charming. Uh, we had a lot of uh, mutual connections. Um, so basically, I know the whole family. Yeah. And his daughter, Tiffany. Okay. For two years, dated uh, my best friend's son. Oh,
0: wow. So know, know both
1: that. They together. Oh, yeah. Uh, How old is she? Uh, Tiffany's graduated. So I'd say twenty-two,
0: twenty-three. Okay, got it.
1: She's at Georgetown Law yeah.
0: now. Oh, right, wow, cool. Yeah. Um, so talking about family, we just talked to Wendy before we started the interview. Um, uh, so you have four kids. Oh, got it. I have four kids.
1: Yeah. Uh, two for the first marriage, and two with Wendy.
0: Okay.
1: Two granddaughters. Uh, One. find hard to believe is eight, eighteen or okay. eighteen, and will soon be sixteen. Wow. And the eighteen-year-old is applying to colleges as we speak. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and should hear soon, I guess, where where she's accepted. She's been accepted at at the Paul and uh, California school, They okay. live, live in California. Got it. Um, I think she's applied to USC and Tulane and she's mm. had a bunch of others. She's waiting on. Um, and I have Jonathan, who's who's I guess forty. And as I said, he's he's the artist. He's the the poet, the the writer. And he's always oh, he's very intense, um, very deep, very empathetic. Um, and he's he's actually recently decided he wants to move to a little town in Colorado called Dolores, Colorado, where can't imagine there's more than 1,200 people. He wants solitude.
2: So he returned
1: to his writing and his his roots. Very cool. Um, And then I have my son, Jared. who got married a year and a half ago Mm -hmm. um, to a wonderful young lady. And he's 31, has done some real estate investment stuff, won't work with me. Um, And then Cassandra Cassidy, Mm -hmm. who graduated uh, Dartmouth, and because her mother, my wife, became ill in 2012 uh, in her last semester, she uh, majored in environmental science and returned down a job to work outside the country and stayed, applied to a training program at CBRE here okay. and came to work here and trained for 14 months and went to work for a broker, um, came into my office one day and said, it was doing very well, um, actually getting off my payroll, mm-hmm. which was <laughs> it. And one day, she says, Dad, you know how you always speak to the young people here? And you tell them if they don't get up in the morning and they can't wait to get to work, and if they're looking at the clock at the end of the day, and they can't wait to get the heck out. Right.
2: Um,
1: no matter how much money they're making in between, because it's sort of a distortion to the real world with the money. People are able to make an enough. Your failures, because sooner or later you're going to be miserable in what you're doing, and you'll be trapped, trapped by the cash flow.
2: Right.
1: And you got to seek what you love. That's the most important first step. Mm. She said, "I don't love this business." Right. Um, and I know you don't want to hear that, but I, I really don't want to do this for the rest of my life. And before I get trapped, yeah, uh, I want to, I want to do something else. So, well, what do you want to do? Should I want to go to law school? And so she went to work for a not-for-profit um, for a year while she prepared for LSATs, and she just finished the halfway point um, at NYU. Uh, fortunately for my wife and I, she's been with a steady boyfriend. Do that during that time, so when she had study and test meltdowns, he had a live with. He had to live with <laughs> if, if he wasn't going to marry him, I would have paid him a retainer to stay with her until yeah. the end of <laughs> Uh, but they got engaged. My people. Could. So
0: exciting! I love it. Um, so one topic I talk about in my podcast interviews is adversity and overcoming it. So I've interviewed different women that you know have lost husbands or sons. Um, I interviewed this one guy that was shot six times, and it's all about you know how they overcome it. So I know that you guys face adversity. with Wendy back in 2012, 2013, when she was diagnosed with leukemia. So can you tell us about the story of when you found out she had leukemia? Yeah.
1: Uh, we went to Cuba in December 2011 mm. and came home and then went to Florida and we were in uh, Florida around Christmas New Year's and she began to have um, serious dehydration she had terrible sores in her mouth and her throat mm. uh, inability to almost drink any liquid and I remember being on the UZ she wanted to go home uh, which never, mind the Wendy's, you know, pushed through. Um, so I made the arrangements and then she said, to I me, mean, no, we can't leave. I can't ruin Cassie and Jared's news. so we'll stay. Right. I remember being out to, to dinner for the holiday, for New Year's Eve with her, and she couldn't eat anything but a little mashed potatoes mm-hmm. and sips of water. We got back and she was dehydrating uh, over the next four or five days. We finally checked her into the hospital. Um, at danger levels, mm-hmm. it, uh, it's heat, it's Um and they first diagnosed her. and thought she had something called dengue fever, which you get from insect bites, and right. it's very tropical. And it's Cuba would be considered a possible origin of that. And they did all kinds of tests, and they came in, uh, sat down, and when they looked at the two doctors and said, she said to them, uh, "You don't look happy. I don't have dengue fever, do I?" And they said, "No, I'm afraid you don't." And she says, "What do I have?" And she, they said, "You have leukemia." And she said, "Being Wendy, leukemia—how do you spell that? Uh, leukemia." I don't know anybody who has leukemia. Anyway, long story short, they put her into uh, immediately into chemo. I mean, okay. Immediately, she's yeah. that far along already. Um, and then Wendy. The ensuing years has fought the most incredible battle. She literally is the most heroic person I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. She has gone through three relapses. She has lost her hair three different times. She's had enormous amounts of chemo. Um, She's had anywhere from uh, as low as 5 to 8% chance of survival to 20% and beat the odds. Um, She had a virus called graph versus host, which which had transplant in 2013,
2: Mm.
1: and she had a virus in between called graph versus host, uh, which is what it sounds like. The graph is the new cells, the hosts all the old ones, and they battle to cause a virus. And there are four stages, and they like a little bit of of it because it energizes the graph. She he he went right to stage four, which is, again, that was the 5% chance of survival. She had third-degree burns, which... I couldn't imagine the body creating that to itself, a chemical reaction. She was in the ICU burn ward. She had all kinds of artificial skin surgeries and you name it. Somehow maintained a sense of humor. I don't know if this is a podcast. I'm not sure anyone gets the visual. But they had her all kinds of bombs and lotions. And they had her Mm -hmm. wrapped in the equivalent of saran wrap. Yeah. Uh, and sort of you know see through. Obviously, and the doctors came to inspect her every day. Uh, agonizing pain. They put four blanket down and she'd say, "What do you think, doctor? Um, too much for New York? Uh, too much for Saint Tropez? Too little for New York?" Yeah. And just I mean jokes. I don't know. one doctor came, and his name was Doctor Ho, and it was around Christmas time. And she says, "Doctor Ho, when it's Christmas time, do you become Doctor Ho Ho Ho?" <laughs> but I mean her sense of humor will to live, mm-hmm. and her focus on giving back immediately while she was going through her own battle right. for her life. Um, she started a fund uh, which raised swaps for testing, for matches. And how many lives
0: did you save through that? Cherise was telling you me about that.
1: can't really determine the actual lives, but yesterday yeah. they hit the 401st match. Wow. Now, percentage of matches to actual transplants may be as low as 12% but let's assume there's 50 transplants out Mm -hmm. of that. They won't tell you how many uh, have lived, but I gotta believe there's 30 or 40 people walking walking around alive because of what she's done. And continues to do. There's still tens of thousands of samples to be tested. And we continue to raise the money to do so. And now she's become a counselor, an inspiration to other victims of blood diseases, uh, test leukemia, but no, no, uh, Mm -hmm. my
0: Um, so how did you stay positive throughout the whole journey?
1: You know, people, people ask me that, and you know, you did this, and you were unbelievable support, and you, you, you moved out of New York while she got her transplant, and you were in Boston for two years, and wow, it's unbelievable most people wouldn't do that. And I I disagree with that. I think you just do it.
0: You just do it, you have to do, yeah. You don't even think
1: about it. It wasn't that like, well, let me see, do I want to go to Boston with her, or should I stop by every couple of weeks Right, see it? Right, right. There was no... You know, she so was looked at uh, Hutch in Seattle, MD Anderson in Houston, Hopkins, University of Pennsylvania. We could have been anywhere. Yeah. And we ended up in Boston, which, as bad as being away from your family and your business and everything might be, it was at least an hour away from right. New York City. Right, so, exactly, yeah. And it could have been worse.
0: Yeah. And uh, you said you stopped drinking six years ago? I stopped earlier? drinking
1: six years ago. Exactly. that during that time, Tim? Yeah, that's why okay. I that's why I did it. The first couple of months after a diagnosis of what she was doing, treating treatment, I kept drinking, you know, mm-hmm. like normal. And, right. Um, and not going out that much, so I would have a drink in the hospital with her, and I thought to myself, there's no way I can be making it with her, coming to critical decisions and and caring for her the way I should. Right. And I said, the only way to do that is to be completely coherent and not... That um, she said uh, hide behind something, try to uh, numb myself to the fact of what we were going through. Uh, so I stopped. Yeah. And I stopped cold turkey, which nobody can really believe because probably drinking almost my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the only way I could do it. You know, tapering off because you taper right. off, and then you say, I ah, just about, we'll have one more tonight." Or yeah. On the weekends or at a party. Um. So I just stopped.
0: Yeah. And, good for you. About six years.
1: Six years That's really night. cool. Yeah. I was also healthy. I lost a lot of weight. I went yeah. to the gym. You look
0: good right now. Um, yeah. I, mean,
1: <laughs> uh, I would probably be a bloated, you know, red face. Who knows what by right. now? Right. Yeah, I yeah. Eat. And I quit. I quit smoking cigarettes when my son Jared was born, so that was thirty years ago. Okay. And then did you find it
0: before? harder to go out and socialize for work without drinking,
2: or did you? Get used no, to I, it
1: was. You know, I realized when I went out like cocktail parties or some reception stuff how silly i must have been
2: mm-hmm. when, okay. I, when i
1: listened to people who thought they were really funny right, right. basically they were buzzed and yeah. they weren't funny at all yeah and i said "Jesus, that was me right, right
0: right so now
1: i would drink cranberry and club most people wouldn't notice and then when people did they say oh come on have a drink and i yeah. say no yeah. i don't drink and after a while the word gets around nobody
2: yeah at you
1: and, no, it didn't bother me. I don't, yeah. I don't think I lost a step in terms of interacting, sociability, mm-hmm. you know, being able to use that aspect of obtaining, maintaining business and, you know, perpetuating the reputation of the company. Yeah. So.
0: Very cool. So another topic I talk about is grit. Have you read that book by Angela Duckworth? No. She's a professor down at Penn in Philly, um, and. It's uh, a pretty good book. It's called Grit, the Power of Passion and Perseverance. So, one quote that um, Jamie Diamond from JP Morgan Chase has he says, Failures are going to happen, and how you deal with them may be the most important thing in whether you succeed. You need fierce resolve. You need to take responsibility. You call it grit, I call it fortitude. The ultimate thing is that we need to grow over time. Demonstrate determination, resiliency, and tenacity. Do not let temporary setbacks become permanent excuses. And finally, Use mistakes and problems as opportunities to get better, not reasons to quit. So obviously, Wendy had a tremendous amount of grit by going through leukemia. And so did you, too, but you know, traveling everywhere. But um, how do you portray grit on a daily basis in commercial real estate industry? Because there's a lot of rejections.
2: You, you wrote words
1: that I guess if I thought about or anybody who goes through it or lives their life that way would write something maybe mm-hmm. less articulately, but yeah. maybe as, but as articulately. To me, uh, grit you know, or fortitude uh, is learning from your mistakes, mm-hmm. not letting your mistakes um, defeat you. Okay. Using those as a challenge to either not let them happen again or mm-hmm. to overcome them. And we've all had setbacks. I mean, I left Kushner and to try the development business and the timing of that was horrific. I and mean, yeah. I had a wonderful uh, arrangement with Chubb Corporation, one of the best insurance companies in the world. And
0: just so the listeners know, to the people that aren't in commercial real estate, you uh, were still in commercial real estate, but it was a totally different side of the business. I went from
1: the service side, servicing owners, developers, mm. and tenants, to the ownership side. Yeah. Developing the buildings that I was putting tenants in. Right. Uh, and I was capitalized very substantially by Chubb. and. The technology and and market information then was nowhere near what we have today. It was Mm -hmm. very hard to calculate. What year was that? 1990?
0: 1990,
1: uh, yes. Okay. The end of 89, beginning of 90. And I quickly bought or built or had under construction almost three million feet of space Mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C., in Dallas, New Jersey. Uh, Three construction, four construction projects, and a 60-story building I purchased in Dallas for... It was a hundred dollars a square foot, hundred million dollar purchase. But there was no way I didn't think it could be—it would be worth less than two hundred a foot in three to five years. Fast forwarding, they sold it for eighty-five a foot five years later. Um, But what turned out to be the fact is that there was a half a billion square feet of vacant space in America, and America was in a entering a severe recession
0: right so timing was off the
1: timing was way off okay. and if it was 45 years early or four or five years later i would not be here talking to you you'd be on the phone long distance to my island okay <laughs> <laughs> some sunny island or I'd be relaxing by the by the beach so
0: what did you learn from that setback
1: again i learned from that setback that you had to pull yourself up mm-hmm. and that's realize that this is not over it's a new beginning
0: right okay. and it really
1: has to be looked at like that yeah uh, you hang. you have anxiety Probably worry uh, beyond anxiety. Um, what will happen? Uh, somebody once said to me that, uh, who became very, very wealthy and successful. And he said, um, "I was so broke that my goal at that time was to break even,
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> to
1: get back to even." Yeah. Uh, and he, he said, "I fought for that, but while fighting for that, I knew I was fighting for far better than that."
2: Right. Yeah.
1: Um, so, from my perspective, I had to assess what my talents were, what, what is it that I was best at, yeah. and obviously uh, as a failed developer whether it was external circumstances or not, yeah. I, sh- I should have probably had the instinct of the timing not being right. right, so I went back to what I knew best, and I was fortunate to have three opportunities that were all very appealing, okay. the best being with uh, my late partner, uh, Everett S. Gordon. Mm-hmm who was a wonderful friend beforehand when we were mortal enemies to yeah. the police for public perception, but we were very good friends privately, mm. talking about strategy, where the business was growing, how to grow and how to change yeah. into a more professional service deliverer, um, and I chose his offer, over going back to Cushman Lakefield, right. for a whole variety of reasons, including his entrepreneurship and mm. Uh, and his generosity in terms of,
2: Total, uh, I yeah. guess,
1: you know, like to be wanted. Yeah. and He wanted me. In yeah. fact, while I was a developer, he would call me almost every month at least, sometimes twice a month, and he would say things like, um, "When are you going to come back to doing what you you know?" Versus right. trying to make believe yeah, yeah. that you know what you're doing. And then he would call me up and he'd say, uh, "What's your favorite color?" I said, "Edie, you I'm know, busy. What, what do you want my yeah, favorite yeah. color?" He said. I want to know your favorite color i said okay it's probably uh, dark blue uh, mm-hmm. uh why and he said cause i want to paint your office because yeah. it's going to be waiting for you it's wow. for sure you're coming yeah here. so things and, turned around and he was right so yeah. that that ended within 60 days i was president and ceo of evidence gordon company okay um, so how
0: many actually economic downfalls have you lived through which do you think was the worst
1: Well, for me personally, in the early 90s. I went through uh, uh, one other somewhere in the 80s and then probably 2007, 8,
0: and 9. How do you muscle
2: through that?
1: You know what? You create, um, out of adversity, you you create opportunity. So in the early 90s when I joined Eddie and we were still in that recession, we created a business line here, which I did, called Blend and Extend. Mm -hmm. And somebody said to me, what is that? Well, new landlords desperately wanted to keep the tenants they had. Mm -hmm. And they needed that to to maintain stability of cash flow. And if they wanted to go to the bank and extend loans and so on. So we set up a department to analyze all the tenants that had leases expiring within a two to four year period. Mm -hmm. We would go to them, ascertain that they wanted to stay. And they were paying, just use round numbers, $50. And exactly. we said, what if we could get you current yeah. rent reduced to $42, okay. again, these are theoretical numbers, for your remaining four years mm-hmm. in exchange for you extending for six more years and giving a landlord disability of 10 years ago. You can do that and save money now? Great. Right. So we were able to do a cottage industry that lasted for two or three years, and instead of our revenue and profitability decreasing, we were one of the only firms in the country that grew yeah. revenue and profit-wise.
0: So, yeah, creative. So,
1: it's thinking out of the box, yeah. being creative, um, and operating your business strategically. And if you're not always thinking of what you're going to do next, who's ever in second is going to be first. Right. And so, we live by that uh, motto. And we had signs hanging in our office. Um, second place is no place, first place is everything. Yeah. So, uh, and I think that was a Vince Lombardi, a famous okay. football coach's statement. And we live by that. Right. We had had strategy meetings constantly. Yeah. So out of adversity comes opportunity. People have to look at it that way. And if they look at adversity as adversity, then they're defeated.
0: Okay. Do you think we're coming close to another economic downfall? We're okay right
1: now. It's. I think we're okay for a couple of years. There's no telling what the new tax bill will uh, will create in the uh, additional national debt.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, And the foreign policy that's being at least uh, publicly, uh, perpetuated it may cause us economic hardship mm. because will be less importing and exporting and whether he thinks China's taking advantage of us or not. Yeah, There still are ancillary benefits to the business we do with China, mm. which is a ripple effect. So we'll see. I mean, there yeah. you know, are those that predict, you know, we're on the precipice in two years at most. Uh, I never try to predict more than two years out and for the next two years, I think we're fine. Yeah. Um, and obviously the stock market is euphoric for whatever reason Mm -hmm. um and so wealth is being created from that and that wealth you would hope gets back into the economy in a variety of ways so Uh, i don't see any imminently
0: okay now one thing i want to ask you too about the restaurant business because you've done (laughs) you've had Maker Rockers for almost 40 years
1: not almost april was 40 wow april
0: and then pj clark's and sarah ff a little bit
1: Yeah, I was one of the three partners that took the original uh, PJ Clarks out of bankruptcy and we we renovated and reopened it.
0: Yeah.
1: When I say renovated, we spent a lot of money to make it look like it was. Right. uh, With the sawdust floors and the old bar. Yeah. Um, Sarah Beth's, I actually got into accidentally. I did a consulting job for them on one of their first up on 92nd Street. And in lieu of a fee, they gave me a small equity interest in that one. And then I started to invest in some of the others. So I'm in three of those, two Clarks. Um, Have you met
0: famous people coming in and out of any restaurants? Yeah, the Knickerbockers.
1: The Knickerbocker, we we have um, Adam Sandler, Chris Knott, Rockwell, who just won the uh, Mm -hmm. the Golden Globe for some weird movies, Uh, Edge of Talk, something. uh, Okay. Samrock was in there all the time. Uh, Ethan Hawk and when he was married to Uma Thurman, mm-hmm. uh, when they got divorced, we unfortunately got Ethan, and Woman went somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> um, Paul Savino. What's nice about the Knickerbocker, they can go there and eat nobody' bugs. Oh wow! Okay. And F. Murray Abraham probably eats there once a week. Uh, others that are less recognizable authors and, and uh, playwrights and so on. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's become a both a destination. Consistently, neighborhood. I mean, it's it's uh, very few restaurants in New York City last 40 years. Yeah,
0: how does it, how do, why do you think it lasted so long?
1: Uh, both, it's uh, its diversity at destination and uh, any restaurant that survives any real length of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, now this is my opinion,
0: yeah. and I'm an
1: investor on an operator, uh, it's consistency.
0: Okay. You give people the same
1: quality, good quality, mm-hmm. obviously the same quality and a very high level of service. We have servers, they're now called services. The servers are no waiters or waitresses. There's no actresses or actors, no actors. um, That have been there as long as 30 years.
0: And the ones that
1: aren't there that long are 10, 15,
2: 20.
1: Anybody who joins that kind of longevity uh, immediately assimilates into that way of doing uh, their job. Our chef, um, who was a, started out as a kitchen aide and ultimately became a sous chef, uh, three or four chefs we went through, and then we we're looking for a new one, we all said, what about Clara, she's been here 32 years, and she's now a chef, she's That's been cool. here for 32 years, so yeah. probably 34 by now, Yeah. 10 or 20 years, yeah. Um, and the other aspect of the Nick is it's eclectic look, I mean, it's really old world,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, we have a bar that we... Uh, we bought from the old uh, Lafayette Hotel when okay. Lindbergh accepted his medal for crossing the oh, Atlantic yeah. and the hotel went out of business. Our piano was bought, we have piano, Taz uh, and mm-hmm. bass. Um, couple, I've like, seen your videos weeks.
0: on Instagram and stuff.
1: Oh, it's, it's very cool. It's, yeah. it's, and, um, it's a quick sidebar of that. But anyway, famous mm-hmm. jazz pianist bought us the uh, piano, board. went with us. His name is Dr. Billy Taylor. Okay. If you look him up, he's legendary passed away now. We have original Hirschfelds, the guy used to do the caricatures in the New York Times every Sunday. Mm-hmm. We have maybe 15 of those. Wow. I had the joy of having dinner with him there. Harry Connick Jr. Mm-hmm. played at the restaurant for almost two years, trying yeah. to his music at $60 a night. We yeah. Him. yeah. He just recently, he has a talk show now, yeah. and he recently did a little 10, 12, 15 minute bit on the Knickerbocker now broke cool. program into mm-hmm. New York and realized mm-hmm. he could play. His New Orleans, as he says, that mm-hmm. uh, music as well as the standards. And, yeah. And it prepared him for a Broadway debut, and he has a one-man show, and he mentions the dick about it all the
0: time. That's awesome. Has Tom right. Hanks ever been there? He's my favorite
1: actor. <laughs> not that I know of. Okay. Uh, Got it. It's not impossible. I'd have to ask my partner. Yeah. But he's not on the East Coast all that much. He's not, yeah. no. So, yeah. um, Sarah Jessica Parker, Matthew Broderick. Oh, uh, um, my wife Wendy would know. Yeah. More. Adam Sandler, after he did uh, You Can't Fool a Zohan, came there after the preview with Eight Guys. Yeah. Took over a whole table the uh, minute. Robert Downey Jr. was there
0: ever?
1: I don't know. She,
0: don't know, yeah. I, I love know. Sarah Jessica Parker, though.
1: Yeah, she She's was, she a bunch of times. Yeah. Um, so cool. Think, who else that you would you know? Chris North, as an aside, <clears throat> we got my daughter's uh, very good friend, was getting engaged. She loved... Uh, section city which yeah our, and obviously mr big mr big yeah so we arranged for she was having the party uh, at a restaurant her uh engagement but i guess it was a shower maybe it was the shower yeah. and uh, I, I arranged with my restaurant partner to get him to show up okay. and surprise her and he comes walking down the steps to the where they were having the party and he goes is uh jackie here Jackie, Jackie, I have a present for you. Oh, my God. And that uh, woman went crazy. It's yeah. big. She cr- <laughs> <laughs> walks over with a pair of Mel- Manolo, Manolo sure. bonnets, yeah. the shoes that yeah, yeah. Uh, she wore in the show. She says, I have, I have a gift for you. It was the Manolo yeah. bonnets. Yeah. If I'm pronouncing it right, and he placed place them on, on. the So old cool. Photos. Yeah. And, and her husband to me was named Ben. And as he's leaving, he goes... And, Jackie, if you have any problems with Ben, you call me. Yeah. I'm sorry. I put a little law and honor in there, too, because that was going to, yeah, to yeah, show, show you yeah. So okay. that was an amazing moment. But that was yeah. as a result of the Nickelbacker. Totally, he's yeah. coming in there all the time. Very he'd nice. He'd sit at a booth with um, one or two other pretty famous people who worked in a script Late at night. Again, nobody bothered him. Very nobody bothered him. Nobody walks nice. up for autographs. It's sort of known. Yeah. We okay. would jump anybody if they did that, right, but right. it's sort of known that it's, it's a part of the crowd that comes there.
0: That's so cool. I love that. How are we doing on time, too? Should be okay. Yeah. Well, a couple more questions. Um, so, Wall Street Journal credited you as the most generous individual in the commercial real estate industry. So, can you tell us why giving back is so important?
1: I think that's something that's also instilled in you by your parents. Mm-hmm. As I told you earlier, my parents were from very, very, very humble means. But if they had X, they would always be prepared to give a portion of that okay. in some way, shape, or form. My mother's a school crossing guard. For those who have never heard of that, um, when I grew up, they literally had um, men and women, mostly women, who stood out there in the freezing cold mm-hmm. and helped kids of variety ages cross the street.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, to go to school and to come out, and they would go out and leave for lunch. And many of these, many kids, when I was a young kid, didn't have any place to go for lunch. Right. So I would come home for lunch, and my mom would be in there, to be three or four kids eating yeah. sandwiches and drinking milk. And I'd go, Mom, which I went, Oh my God, yeah. we're out of cheese or whatever, whatever it was. Yeah, right. Um, she would take in uh, um, mostly challenged, uh, mentally challenged kids. She would babysit them or take Mm. them out on a Saturday for you know to a museum park or something my father would was a commercial painter he would paint somebody's apartment for free Mm -hmm. who needed it couldn't afford it to be done I know that was their way of giving back and my brother and I grew up doing that um and I don't know it's just again instinctive if you could help somebody and have the wherewithal whether it's actually sending money or getting involved on a board to help Mm -hmm. raise money or be an honoree at a dinner that uh, sells tables and raises money. Right. And I was known after a while for my ending speech was always, this is the last time I'm going to bother you. And I go, no, it's not. No, it's not, yeah. Because anytime I can put your seats, your backsides in mm-hmm. seats, and you'll write a check to sit there.
2: Right.
1: And it goes toward the cause I'm going to keep standing up here until there's an empty room.
2: Yeah.
1: And one day when I come and nobody's here, I'll know that's when I'm done.
0: Right. So, I love Iopansky back. Not always money, but just their time, Yeah, that's, that's it. What people mean, can do. That's it. That's, that's
1: it's not what you give back. It's how, yeah. you, how you give back right. or as long as you give back.
0: Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, so what sales pitch would you give to a woman to enter commercial real estate? Because it's sort of male-driven, especially in Philadelphia.
1: No, it's a men's club. Yeah. Not just Philadelphia. I've been a perpetuator of women in our business since I was CEO of Christopher Lakefield. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe you have to have a certain temperament to be successful in our business. You have mm-hmm. to have a farmer in some ways yeah. because regardless of men who should act in a different way in sense to be training at the end of the day they're chauvinistic right. in many ways and right. some, one of the things my daughter didn't like was how tweet her when she's out on a tour showing space mm-hmm. or doing whatever and sometimes it's demeaning um, but I would encourage any woman who's here who comes to the interview and has that's to have what it takes. You yeah. don't want to hire a woman because she's a woman and has less of the attributes to be successful than, let's say, a man
2: does.
1: Yeah. On an equal level, I believe a woman could have an advantage as okay. long as she's tough enough right. to to uh, to, to, uh, to survive time mm-hmm. to demonstrate her abilities. Right. Like we have a superstar, Marion Ty. Yes, she's as smart as anybody in our business. She's perseveres. She's she's now become very, very renowned mm-hmm. and very. Uh, very successful, uh, and there are a number of women. It's interesting; those that are successful are uber successful, mm-hmm. uh, which should perpetuate more. But I think it's a, first of all, it's not a glamorous business to women.
2: Mm-hmm. Right?
1: You know, fashion is yeah. maybe Wall Street is, has all that appeal. I don't think it's. I think it's a question of educating women that mm-hmm. this is a real opportunity Definitely, for them, yeah. and that has to be at the ground roots of schools and yeah. things like that. And I don't think. We pay much attention to mm-hmm. that. You I taught
0: Patrice and Tara, so my two sisters. Patrice is at CB in New York and Tara in Philly. They should be models for people too.
1: Oh my god, Patrice yeah. is amazing I don't know how else she does it. I mean, she's four kids, or 14 now. I don't know. I lost count. <laughs> uh, commutes. On top of that, she now commutes. Uh, yeah. And you see here, Crack of Dawn, stays mm-hmm. late, and has four I mean, I know three of the kids well. I don't know the newest baby. And there's fun and loving and charming mm-hmm. and as she is. I mean mm-hmm. the whole Haiti group. I have no idea how you guys turned out the way you did with Tony as your father.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I agree, I don't know. <laughs> he
1: didn't talk to you now until you were four. <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah. Um but you are I mean an amazing family. You know I love Tony Jr. I love Tara. I love mm-hmm. you. I love I love uh, uh, Mandy who's mm-hmm. more serious than any of you but mm-hmm. she's great. Especially yeah. recently called Wendy. Yeah. Um, And that connection obviously comes from your mom and dad and our friendship, but Mm -hmm. we were there when a lot of you guys were born. Yeah, I
0: remember. Um,
1: I almost deterred Tony from the priesthood, uh, giving him his (laughs) first massage or (laughs) having (laughs) Reggie when he was 18. Uh, But yes, Patrice is a star, your sister Tara is a star, you're a star, I mean, sincerely. Um, Tara and I had some involvement with her Mm -hmm. in her decision to... And the decision was not so much a better opportunity as a decision to stand alone.
0: Totally, yeah. yeah she mm-hmm. wanted
1: that, and she wanted to let people know that what I do yeah. is not because I'm with Hayden, but right, right, right. because I'm good at what I do.
0: Yeah, she's and, doing great, too. I'm proud I don't of her. know,
1: I no doubt. Yeah. And my son has that issue with, if he worked here, he would always be Steve's son, and I keep telling him that's not the case. Because mm-hmm. you have the ability, sooner or later, nobody will know whose son you are.
2: right. Exactly.
1: I didn't, and twice I thought I had him, and um, he's totally never going to happen now. Yeah. Um,
0: so, speaking of age, because I know Jared a year old and he's 31, I'm 30, so what advice would you give to a third-year-old? That's a lot of
1: my audience. I would first ask what you're doing, mm-hmm. and then I would ask that, you now I'm getting boring with this question, do you love what you're doing?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And again, the same story, the same message, I give over and over again here every year there's a new class of Interns that yeah. come in or trainees, and I speak to them every year. Mm-hmm. The same, same statement. What are you doing? Do you love what you're doing? If you don't find something that's passion that you're passionate mm-hmm. about, yeah. that you love going to work every day, someone says to me, "When am I going to stop?" First of all, it's not like I could go a lot of places, travel and because Wendy's sort of grounded, mm-hmm. uh, and we just got recently to be okay to go to Mexico and move around a little bit, but we'll never go to Europe again or any mm-hmm. of that stuff. Um, but I, that's not the reason. I love what I do. Right. I'm still uh, charged up about it, and I said, I will stop the first time I go to pitch business to try to get some business, and I really don't care mm-hmm. what the outcome is. Right. Or right. when I pitch business and I don't care that I lost it.
0: Okay. Then I'll
1: know it's time to, to, move, on, yeah. to move on. Okay. Um, but I come here. And I'm alive, but I'm here. Yeah. Um, so cool. That doesn't mean somebody doesn't have a bad day uh, and then say, you know, I am not know what i doing, but I never say, I hate this place. Right. I, mean, I know guys that do. And that story about Cassie not wanting to get trapped, I know people here who have told me that they're trapped by their income. Mm-hmm. They can't change their life. They have a house, they have kids now, and they right. have to do this. So speaking about my son, who I yeah. tried to get here, I had him interview with two guys, one here. I went to Cushman-Wakefield that I really liked his style and if he was going to work I do wanted to work with me. Mm-hmm. And they both said, I want you, I'd love to give you a job. But in the course of telling him about the business and what they thought he could do with it, they told him they hate it. Okay. Wow. And, I, <laughs> and he comes back and he says, Dad, you know, they made me an offer, it was really great, I can yeah. make this, I can do that. But they told me they hate what they do. Yeah. Now why would I want to do that? Mm-hmm. And so I thanked them very profusely. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for turning my my son off. Right. So, I think you got to love what you do. Yeah,
0: I agree. A lot of the guests that I've interviewed in the past say the same thing is that they're passionate and they have enthusiasm. And that's what gets them success, it's fulfilling. Yes. So, for people not to settle. And I hope not, they the settles. measure is
1: not, and I know it is in a lot of places, in a lot of industry and in society, it's, mm. it's not what you make, it's what you make of it. Right. And how you live your life. You know, some of the most charitable people are people who make literally nothing, you know, right. as I reflect back on my mom and dad. Mm and they enjoy, they enjoy their church, their community, and they enjoy their lives, and they're not moguls. They're mm-hmm. not superstars. Right. They love what they're doing. What they're
0: doing yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, okay, so I think we have time for rapid fire. So, so quick questions. Okay. <laughs> um, so when you think of the word success, who comes to mind? It can be more than one person, too. People have interesting need, answers to this.
1: You, want to, you need a person?
0: Or it can be someone close to you, a famous person, whoever you think of when you think of success. Generally
1: speaking, and this is a cliche, I really believe anyone who's happy what they're doing is successful. Mm, I agree with that, I don't care what level. Social worker, a school teacher. Mm. I mean, for the grace of God, one of my goals, if I ever had a goal, was to be a history teacher. Mm. And I'm sure I would have been very happy making a difference in kids' lives and so on. I just Um, interviewed a
0: history teacher recently. You just i i just interviewed a history teacher yeah recently. i, yeah. You know,
1: well, I loved really history deep. so that was i transferred that to and teaching when i grew up teaching um police i mean those were all mm. were achievable goals um, medical school and things like that were not where, where i grew up it was, right. it was not necessarily achievable a really successful person um oh God, i can go way back i think john kennedy was incredibly successful yeah. i was just telling wendy The other day we watched a movie called Hidden Figures, which Mm -hmm. is an extraordinary movie, and there were clips of John Kennedy and and his. I guess maybe the basis of comparison made him seem even more godlike to me. Right, right. Um, So uh, politicians who are not political, I think, are successful. Those who really try to do good. Okay. I think people. Mother Teresa, people mm-hmm. spend their lives giving back. Yeah. Of course, they're successful. You mentioned Jamie Dimon. Of course, he's usually successful in Bloomberg and all the, the common names if you measure by money. Uh, but if you measure by money and how much of that they give back, it's no different barometer. So I right. think a Bill Gates is successful because he's now bequeathed his money to the good. Right. So as Warren Buffett, those are successful people. Um, I tried to send a business plan to Bill Gates how he can help today, mm-hmm. and I think to, for me, you don't just give money to people who, let's say, are out of work or below the poverty level, but my suggestion, to him was to build factories or distribution centers or some kind of businesses in towns that are impoverished and businesses have left mm-hmm. and whatever it loses per year is like basically what you'd be giving right. to subsidize um, incomes, give these people jobs, Yeah. produce four or five hundred jobs, those jobs produce dollars that, put, that helps the town the community, the, the stores Yeah. Um, and if you lose x millions a year that's that's your charitable contribution I, I, I got a very nice letter back not from him personally yeah yeah <laughs> We'll look into it. The foundation yeah. will study it. I've never seen it implemented.
0: Okay.
1: That's the kind of thing I would do if I had enough uh, enough capital. Yeah. Um, but to me, they are very successful. Right. And, and now Zuckerberg is doing the same yeah. thing from Facebook. And so these people will make an inordinate amount of basically what some would say obscene money.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, and, and choose to give right. most of it back to society. I think that's success. Success, definitely. Uh,
0: so, one last question, too. I see you having juices. Do you have any daily routines having you for the day? Because I'm trying to get into the whole like green cleansing thing. Yeah, I
1: started uh, only in the last, I mean, I've kind of watched you know, my weight since I, I stopped drinking. I lost a lot of weight I exercise when I was in Boston. I had nothing much to do but get up, go to a gym, go to the hospital, yeah. stay in the hospital until 2 in the morning if I didn't sleep there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Get up, go to the gym, go to the hospital, yeah. and eat right, I, you know, I mean, I love bread. Yeah. no bread, no carbs for two years. Really? Two years. What did you eat? I ate um, uh, grilled salmon, uh, steamed spinach, a lot of steamed spinach, okay. steamed vegetables in general. Uh, I drank a live man, a lot of fruits, um, okay. and uh, once in a while I'd have a yam,
2: okay.
1: um, and not a baked potato, but a yam, mm. uh, which had less calories. Uh, I did, that was basically what I ate for two years. Right, um, wow. And... Now, while I eat a, a, a variety of things, I eat half of mm. everything. Yeah. So my routine is: if I order a bowl of pasta, I eat half the bowl. Okay, of
2: pasta. So got it. So I stop it. at half. Yeah.
1: Uh, I drink a green, not so gross because I put eight ounces of coconut water in it and it's green powder, okay, which is uh, uh, vegetable based. Mm. So I drink that in the morning and then I drink a smoothie, which is a protein smoothie. It's probably that's my breakfast ninety percent right. of the time. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> um, And then lunch is, as I said, I'll, uh, I will push away half or whatever or I'll have a soup or something. What I do need to do is get back into regular exercise. When mm-hmm. I get back to New York, I start playing golf again. Okay, so time-consuming. Yeah, it is. It's very time-consuming for me because I'm horrible. <laughs> I, mean, I shoot I have more, more shots than most people and then it takes me longer. Um,
0: it's a halloween sport. It, I just started playing. It's it, hard. It's,
1: it's terrible. <laughs> but, I like, but I like the people aspect. Yeah, it's fun. It's um, fun. Yeah, so there, that's yeah, fun. But, I mean, I used to be in the gym and I only have two hours. I was jogging four, four and a half miles mm-hmm. four times a week. Yeah. I was really in good, strong physical shape as well as being thin. You know, okay. Just because you're thin, you're not in physically top shape. Right. Um, so, to me, the gym and more regular. You uh, said it would be the last component of this new so-called health
0: care. Yeah. And then, one last question. If you could gift any book to anybody, what would it be?
1: book? Oh, my God, so many different books. Um, I would probably give a biography of someone like David Rockefeller. Okay. Um, follow the trail of success. It wouldn't be David Rockefeller because he was born to the manor, but he lived like someone who wasn't. I mean, you thought about charitable, and he was basically the young crown king in the United States. But I'd probably read a book about a Bill Gates, uh, okay. or somebody that maybe wasn't all technical, a Mark Cuban. Mm. Uh, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I read a lot of these books. Okay. Um, I can't think of any one that i recommend. Right. And plus, I love a lot of fiction. Cause yeah. Fiction is this balance is very important in your life. Mm. When I came to work with Eddie, you can't have any balance in your life. Uh, I was so you know that's not true. you can have to <laughs> find time for your family, maybe less than you should. You travel a lot. And if I look back and have any regrets, I couldn't have changed it. Yeah. It would have been maybe more time with, with my kids. Yeah. Um, but you can have balance, and you have to have balance. And for me, if I read a Who Cut My Teas" or one of, these, one of these books that are <clears throat> supposed to be, now I read a lot of um, Books about yogi and uh, yeah. finding peace and you know, meditation, um, which I'm not a disciple of yet, but I have done it. Yeah. In fact, I recently had some minor surgery where they couldn't exercise it. Couldn't, and I managed to take my mind away from the pain. Mm-hmm. And it's the first time I tried anything like that. Yeah. But it can be done. Definitely. Um, But fiction, I think, is a ability to relax both your mind, definitely, yeah, and takes you away from constant pressure. Uh, So I recommend tons of fiction
0: books. Yeah, Uh, really cool. I think we covered everything. Thanks, Steve. High five! High five! Success stories. (laughs) That was great. Thank you. Hey everybody, thanks so much for tuning into the podcast. I hope you enjoyed Eddie's story as much as I did. If you'd like updates on other guests that I will have on the podcast, follow me on Instagram. My username is high 5 Success Stories, or on Twitter, High5Hayden. Or you can friend me on Facebook and LinkedIn. And lastly, you can find me on my website, which is www.stephayden.com. Again, that's www.stephayden.com. And also, if you guys could please remember to subscribe rate, and review the podcast. That'll help me out a ton. Thanks so much and hope you have a great day.